Welcome once again to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, joined once again by our panel. Say hello, panel. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hello, panel. Hello, panel. And uh, today, we're, get, we're going to get to our introductions in just a moment, but today I want to talk about our subject first. It's uh, diversity, representation, and inclusion within the world of, of the Wheel of Time. Um, and, and everybody on the panel really wanted to have this discussion. And, and, uh, another friend of mine, uh, Saima, who I had actually originally wanted to be my co-host for this show, uh, also wanted to be included. So we brought her on as well, and we're going to have a, a big discussion and we're going to do our, 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 uh, our intros a little different today. We're going to tell a little bit about ourselves so that you know what perspectives we're bringing to this discussion. Um, so first of all, my name is Ruark. Uh, that's me. Hey, I'm Ruark. Hi, Ruark. Hello, Ruark. Yes. Um, I am queer and non-binary, which I guess goes without saying if you're non-binary, you're queer, but, uh, I, uh, live with chronic pain, um, and I have lived with, uh, mental health issues for most of my life, namely depression. Um, and, uh, those are some some background things about myself so that you can understand where some of my thoughts are coming from on what we're discussing ahead. And uh, I also wanted to open up by saying how important these books were for me personally. Um, okay. <clears throat> Said I wasn't going to let my voice crack. That was the once. <laughs> Not going to let it happen again. Uh, so, in the book, it's very clear from the very beginning that Rand is the main character. And for young me, who had grown up a uh, socialized male, a redhead, um, in a, with not a whole lot of other redheads around, uh, I got bullied a lot. And that's not just a, a thing that happened to me. That happens to a lot of redheaded men growing up, uh, especially in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, and we didn't get to see a whole lot of positive depictions in the media. Usually redheads were de depicted as villains or as sidekicks or as comic relief or as a bully. Those, those were pretty much the options. And then I picked up this book, and right there was a description of me as the main character. And let me tell you, that was powerful. I immediately glued onto these books because for the first time, I got to see myself at the center of the story. And for that very reason, that, that, that's why these books in this series are so important to me. It, it, from a very early age, gave me something to see myself in another world like this. And uh, yeah, that's, that's why I am such a super fan of this series and why I enjoy it so much. Um, so I want to, with that, pass on to Saima. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to us and uh, tell us a little about yourself. Thank you, Ruach. Hi, everyone. I am Saima. I like to be known as Simon Silverbow because my favorite characters from Wheel of Time are Nynaeve, Begitta, Matt, and Tom. And that combination makes for a very confusing and awesome human being. 
Um, my pronouns are she, her, and I am a second-generation British Pakistani born and bred in Yorkshire. I have a dynamic disability, which means that sometimes I use a wheelchair and I also have uh, quite a few mental health curiosities. I'm super excited to be here with everyone today. And I said four favorite characters, but I started reading Wheel of Time when I was 16 and I immediately fell in love with Nynaeve. Not only was I Nynaeve, but I realized now, or soon after I was eight, I was 16, I realized I needed a Nynaeve in my life. And it's been a very important series for me throughout my life. Um, and it wasn't until the cast of the show was announced actually two years ago this month I think is when I first saw the selfie that uh, Rosamund Pike had taken with uh, the, the Fellowship of Seven and I saw that somewhere on Facebook and immediately just was like what and looked it up and I saw the cast of the Emmons Field Five and when I saw Nynaeve I just burst into tears and I was really shocked at my own reaction and it took a little bit of kind of sitting with it to realize that for 20, I don't know what at that stage, if it was 26 years of being part of this world and imagining myself as Nynaeve or Nynaeve being my best friend, even when I saw myself as Nynaeve, I saw myself as a white woman with a brown braid and it wasn't until seeing Zoe Robbins cast as Nynaeve that I realized how messed up it was that even in my own head I was still seeing myself as a white woman and so yeah I'm just super thrilled beyond ecstatic with the the diversity in the show uh, it's it's more than the diversity in my own head, <laughs> it appears. Um, and I'm just really excited to be a part of this conversation. Thank you. And thank you for coming and joining us. I'm, I'm so happy to have you with us. Let's go ahead and uh, talk to Siobhan. Siobhan, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of, bit of info about yourself? Okay. Um, I am non-binary, queer, polyamorous. Um, I have... Uh, a number of invisible disabilities. I have a mood disorder. I have some pretty severe sensory processing disorder. I have a vestibular disorder. I fall down a lot. Um, <laughs> most of uh, what I wanted to talk about when we initially proposed this episode was I wanted to talk about queer representation and gender representation in the show. So um, I think there's an absolute ton to talk about there. So that's where that's where my perspective comes from. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us. And uh, David, why don't you go next? Uh, hi, everyone. Um, so I'm a white hetero male um, who deals with mental health issues and uh, from a young age has had problems with uh, obesity and self-image as well as uh, 
masculinity problems um, with those around me. So those are where I'm coming from. All right. And we're glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, let's uh, hear from Greg next. Hi. Um, I'm pretty much in the same <laughs> same boat as David here. Uh, again, uh, white, hetero, been married for 20 years now uh, with uh, issues, lifelong issues with depression, anxiety, ADHD, uh, obesity, yada, yada, yada. Uh, you know, the, 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 the pretty much the same, uh, the same resume as David. Uh, so yeah, they, these are the type of things that I've, that I've dealt with. It's my lot in life. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I'm coming from. Uh, Axel. Uh, so I present as cishet white male, all the privilege in the world with the added benefit of being an English accent in North America. But <laughs> um, I'm agender. Uh, polyamorous have uh, a pastel of mental health issues for added fun and come with an interesting little side order of how of um, my mother's German. My dad's English. Um, I was born in West Germany in a British army base and moved back to the UK when I was 10, which leads to a really interesting, sounds all normal to you, but it meant that, oh, hello, Nazi, is a thing that kids would say to me in school. You know, um, because being German and having a German name and having a mother who has a pronounced German accent were all things that actually hit British racism really well especially in a small town where there aren't people of color to get hit with racism. So the racism has to go somewhere. It's kind of how it felt to me anyway. Um, so yeah, it's a bit weird. Right, well, thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, coming up last, but certainly not least, she's, she's my favorite panel member. Don't tell anybody else. Uh, Samaria. Thanks. She's ours too, so. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, yeah, so in case um, it hasn't come through so far, um, I am Black American, and I like to specify that I'm Black from slaves, not Black from immigrants, because that experience does matter, um, that nuance. Um, and I grew up in the Northeast U.S., which also matters, but I had this really funky distinction of growing up in Prince George's County, which doesn't mean anything to my fellow panelists. But if you are in the know, Prince George's County, at least when I was growing up, was or might still be is um, the richest black county, majority black county in the United States. And so it was a really bit of a quirk to grow up in a place where one, everybody looks like you, which is not an experience most black people in the US are um, privileged enough to have, but also you can experience like black wealth and black poverty in the same space within a few miles of each other, often literally next door. Um, and that really kind of scrambled my perception of race in America growing up until I was like in high school, college. But um, it did make for, you know, a really interesting upbringing. Um, let's see, I'm queer, which I didn't really know until I was in college. Like I had an inkling, but I just assumed that everybody, like everybody was queer. So that, that was 
really interesting. Um, and I'm a minister's daughter, which I also feel like I should throw out there. Um, I uh, was agnostic. I did as agnostic for a few years in my teens and my early 20s. Returned back to Christianity with like an asterisk beside it. Um, but, you know, I like I attend church regularly. I tithe, all that good stuff. At the same time, I'm like doing spells under a full moon. So... <laughs> Um, I like I I uh, feel like that's really important to note. Like, in case anybody is like, "Where is she coming from? Where does that come from?" That's all. Of that is where. Um, and now I live in the South. I live in Alabama, which comes with all kinds of jokes. Um, but that is okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Samaria. Glad to and, be here. Uh, and now you that, see why she's our favorite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you, you were just saying something about being a Catholic who tithes and everything and yet still does spells under a full moon. And I was thinking that, They're not that uh, far Greg apart. probably knows a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was I was an altar boy uh, as a kid, too. So um, right around the same time, one of the first uh, major cases of, you know, priests doing things they shouldn't be doing with children was uh was hitting in south louisiana when i was growing up uh town like you know five miles away so that colored my perception of of religion yeah quite a bit you had something to say somewhere? yeah so not catholic um okay so like technically name on the tin it's non-denominational but like honestly i grew up pentecostal so like speaking in tongues and like catching the holy ghost and like people falling out in the aisles like all of your lovely black church stereotypes like i grew up in it so you know oh wow i, I have fun i have fun stories it's like not to make fun but you know <laughs> it's it is fun sometimes Diving directly into our discussion, I think we're going to um, just dive straight in and talk about um, the racial makeup of the show. And and I don't think there's a whole lot to say other than, uh, holy hell, they really went wide with this one, and, and I'm loving it. Um, when they first showed the pictures, uh, the, the initial cast that they showed, um, to, to the super fans way back several years ago were, uh, Rosamund Pike, uh, Daniel Henney, and then the, the five from the two rivers. And most people in their headcanon at that point had envisioned the two rivers people as white, because that is kind of the, the default in most fantasy literature um for reasons that we won't get into but we all know why um and it was really interesting because my first initial thought was i love this casting because a it's not what i saw in my head it shows me the limitations of my own imagination this casting looks amazing um b i wanted as many people as possible to be able to have that same feeling I had when I felt, when I realized Rand was the main character and he looked like me, you know, I wanted as many different people as possible to get that feeling when they watched this show. Um, and going into it a little further, Simon, you can help me uh, talk about this in the books. He didn't actually say that they were all white. Everybody just kind of imagined them that way. Yeah. it's. Uh... I mean, I'm shocked, really, when I look back at it now. 
and I can see that you know the two rivers they're kind of mostly they are described as as darker than I had in my mind and what you said you know that we just see people growing up reading fantasy science fiction because most of the protagonists are white you just have this assumption that the next thing you read it's going to be the same thing but absolutely Jordan does not specify I did and when he does specify it's very clear like yeah. you can't dispute it then in these other areas being darker having dark hair and then of course Rand really stands out Rand doesn't just stand out because he's got red hair there are other things yeah that he stands it, it, out he's also got the very light skin and yeah. I understand from my view as a person with red hair and light skin, when I read that the people around him were darker, I immediately just thought of the people around me because I think of the people around me with dark hair and somewhat darker skin tone, though still a Caucasian skin tone as darker than me because, you know, I'm, I'm about as pale as they get. And so, you know, that's, that's where my hang up came. But then I realized like that, that's not just mine. Everybody thought that way. And when you look at Jordan's writing, he, he didn't use direct color comparisons to skin tone very often. Most of the time he used colorful terms. He said darker than or lighter than or, you know, dark as an ocean un, in a deep royal or, or coppery toned or, you know, what does coppery toned look like when you're talking about skin tone? It, 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 it could be be just about anything and and that's what i yeah i i see tan but maybe a little bit of olive tone to it also and and you know who knows it, it could be a description that they just use in world that something looks coppery to them and so they use it and and that's what i love about it is like he doesn't just come out and say this person is this color and this person is that color he just you know they can be whatever and and it doesn't have to fit to a, a rigid style um that's the genius of his writing style as well you know the older i got the more i read and i started to notice these you know the, the writing styles that really good writers have is that he is giving these really kind of fluid descriptions of color without limiting it because as soon as you apply race in a sense it limits it right you have this yeah. one idea then because he didn't do that and i think it comes from his background you know he traveled he experienced more of, you know, of the world, but he didn't limit even his own experience of the world. He yeah. let it flow into everything, and it comes through the writing really beautifully. Uh, Axel, you have something to say. Yes. So I just wanted to comment on copper as a skin color. Like in, I think in most people's mind, you're thinking white person with suntan. Because that's uh, it's it's an it's a name that's associated uh, yeah, yeah. with tanning tone lotions. Is, right. is literally copper tone, the suntan uh, lotion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but if you look at a copper coin, right, one p, two p, one cent, it's brown. Like yeah. Samaria skin color is copper, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. not white, but <laughs> it's been. It's, it's it's a great example of just how everything in our cultures, get whitened. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Greg, you have something to say. Yeah. Um, part of that reason that it's, that it's a default is just the history. You know, there hasn't been a lot of writers of color uh, 
doing fantasy stories about people of color, you know, it hasn't been, I'm sure it's there. Uh, there are authors that are doing that. I'm sure there have been authors that have been doing that for years, but it's just not as mainstreamed, uh, which, you know, shame on us for doing that because, you know, we're, we're missing out on, on potentially some really great stuff. So I think that, uh, that default just comes from history, just comes from, you know, that those are the, those are the books that are being published. And it's not just, those are the books that are being published. It's that's the art that's being produced. And, and, you know, that's that's all the imagery we ever see. So that's the imagery that gets stuck in our head. Yeah. Uh, It's film, it's video games, it's TV, it's everything. Yeah. Siobhan, you have something. Oh, I was I was just going to address Greg's point about um, authors of color. It, it's not necessarily that they don't exist. It's that I think traditionally they've had to get the James Tiptree treatment in order to be acknowledged. Tiptree was famously a woman writer who wrote under mm-hmm. a pseudonym in order to get her books published. Mm-hmm. So I like I'm just off the top of my head, Samuel Delaney is, um, um, you know, uh, Dumas, who wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, like there's, yeah. there's tons of writers out there, but they're, um, they're just sort of whitewashed they're, they're, by history. You yeah. Know, that's, and that's normalized. it. It's kind of like their, their, their skin color or their, their cultural background is downplayed or even their, to make them more acceptable gender, yeah. to the readers. Actually, you had a follow up. Yeah, um, I'm just going to jump in. Again, the history of fantasy kind of starts with Tolkien, who was writing a myth for English people, being English. And so the heroes of, the, you know, it's racist as fuck. Um, also imperialist and a whole lot of other things. But in, like, and, and, and Edgar Rice Burroughs was quite possibly right around there and he was the guy that gave us conan which is the other big yeah. strand of fantasy and white literature in general but yeah just a little bit there um any other thoughts um about the representation of race in the show uh simon go ahead so um this is something i've been hearing a lot about so wheel of time actually gives us an in-world historical reason uh, the breaking right? Yeah. It scattered these diverse populations. And this is how this could be a way, a reason why we have so much diversity. And a lot of people use that, right? They use that as, look, you know, in Wheel of Time, we have a reason for this. And yeah, we have that reason. But my question is, do we always need a justification, especially in fantasy? Right. We can accept magic and talking dragons, but race always has to follow real world rules. Yeah. And I'll give an example that I didn't like. Um, that uh, quality show that some of you may have heard of, Bridgerton, <laughs> that came out <laughs> last year. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, it's a it's a period costume drama and look at all these people of colour. And I was really enjoying it until about halfway through. They throw this lame ass one sentence reason of, oh, you know, black people have come so far, but only because the king married a black woman. And mm. that's the reason why we're, we're in these positions. And it just, like, it just completely ruined the story because it's like, no, no, if you're trying to give a real world reason, 
then in the space of a couple of decades, people of color would not have progressed so far. Because if you're giving a real world reason, racism. Hello? No, this would not have happened. Look what's happened. I mean, this was meant to be set, I don't know which century. And look what's happened, you know, right here now with the royal family and Meghan. It's like, it it was a really bad reason. If they had given no reason, it worked. It's like it's just people. It's just people. It's just actors. So uh, that's my question. It's like, what, why do we need to have a justification, and why do people need a justification? And Samaria, you you perked right up during this discussion. I want to hear what you have to say. I did, and so okay. So I was born ninety three, like for our listeners out there, and. What's really fun about having been born during those space of years is how much media for kids um, that was just very colorful, Um, literally colorful in a way that media really isn't now, but also in, you know, terms of casting and character design. And the universal millennial favorite is Brandy Cinderella, Brandy and Whitney Houston, 1997. and you know, recently on social media, conversations pops up and people go, how come, you know, this, you know, this white man and this black woman had a Filipino kid and nobody said anything. We all just kind of rolled with it. And, you know, if you're familiar with that movie, which is one of my all time favorites, um, like there's zero explanation for anything. Like this white woman has two biological daughters. One is dark black skin. One is white, white. And you know, that's just how it is. There's no rhyme, no reason. And it's just presented in both in universe and to the audience that this is just how this town is and nobody blinks. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, the recent in the last decade and a half of, you know, reboots and remakes. And, you know, a big complaint every time Disney casts, you know, a Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury or, or um, Chloe Bailey as, I think it's actually Halle Bailey, um, as Ariel in the new live action Little Mermaid is like, oh, well, these characters can't be black. How come they're black? That doesn't make sense. Ariel's data, she can't be black, which don't get me started on that argument. But, you know, <laughs> or, you know, well, Nick Fury, you know, you're ruining the character. And, you know, there are two ways to respond to that. It's like, one, well, how come they can't be black? And two, which I like um, my favorite, you know, response is, you know, with every remake of a character, that's a generation who gets to see that character, that iteration of the character as theirs. So for my generation and, you know, Cinderella has always been black, you know, and in my generation, Nick Fury has always been black and it doesn't take away from. 1950s Cinderella doesn't take away from comics Nick Fury being white. Um, But, you know, the essence of this character remains real, remains true to the source and still gets to, you know, be beloved by an audience um, that one doesn't get a lot of representation in these, you know, iconic roles, but also, um, which, you know, one person in this conversation on Tumblr pointed out was it is very important for non-Black kids, especially white kids, to see Black people in these iconic, um, positive roles. And so, you know, 
Nowadays, you don't get to see black characters in things like Hey Arnold or Recess or, you know, they don't make shows like The Proud Family or Kim Possible where, you know, you have all kinds of black characters in all sorts of roles with all sorts of personalities from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, And, you know, there's an absence of that. So if a little Gen Z or Generation Alpha kid gets to see a black Ariel in The Little Mermaid and she's beautiful, but she's not, you know, doesn't have traditional Eurocentric features, um, you know, she has locks, you know, um, that that impresses upon these non-black children, especially white children, you know, that one, black people are people, you know, um, but also black people can be beautiful. Black people can be intelligent. They can be smart. And also black people can be afraid and black people, you know, can just have experienced the, the wide range of human emotions and be human without having to be necessarily exceptional, which is also something like I really saw in Wheel of Time. And so, you know, there are all kinds of black characters And, you know, there's not just, you know, oh, we have to pick one. So we have one black token. So it can be either Perrin or Swan or, you know, Lowell, even though Lowell is technically not human, but never mind that. Um, And then that's, you know, that's all you get. Yeah. Good thoughts. Um, David, you have something to add. Thanks for, uh pointing out my childhood perfectly Samaria because I'd never even thought about those sorts of things but it's it's beautiful um but I was going to mention that with all of these different races that they've brought into the wheel of time and um from an inclusion standpoint it's so beautiful that the production team has woven uh the cultures of these races into the costuming and the also with the actors how they um how they talk how they move is culturally based and appropriate to the actors which is something you just don't see very often yeah, but, very uh, i noticed it with alana first uh when she's in uh moraine's bedroom and has her her shoes off she's barefoot which that's a cultural thing that's not western and then Damn I right, started the shoes off. That's the normal <laughs> way to be. <laughs> and uh, and then um, I also noticed started noticing the costuming is like, OK, we have some Asian costuming for the Asian actors and we have Eastern costume for the Eastern actors. And then uh, Moraine's is a, a um, um, Euro styling. And it's it's so incredible to see that correlation. Uh, Siobhan, you had something to say. Um, I wanted to go back to what Simon said about the um, the breaking being the kind of assumed reason why um, you know these various areas have so much so much diversity. And I mean, to me, this is this is something that predates the 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 breaking because we see the city from before the breaking where they have flying cars it's obviously a very similar if not more advanced culture to our own my city looks like that i mean i live in you know the most ethnically diverse city in my country whites aren't the majority here we are just the largest minority so to me it makes absolute sense that if you have 
a place that went through a fairly modern period where people had the ability to move around that absolutely most of most of these cities would see a diversity of skin tones and cultures um and i think one of the things that wheel of time did that makes it feel really organic is you don't go to a city and see a whole bunch of people who look the same. You see different percentages. So like, for example, the city in the north, you have a much larger East and South Asian population, but you also have everybody else. In another city, you maybe have uh, uh, Tarvalon, you maybe have a majority white population, but you see tons and tons of everybody else. That feels much more organic and it feels much more realistic than just saying this group of people come from this spot and this group of people come from that spot and they never move. Yeah. Uh, Greg, you have something. Yeah, that, that's a very good point because you've got if, if you've got an advanced society, you've got something cosmopolitan going on. You've got migration. You've got uh, these advancements in technology and economies that would bring a diverse group of people together. So, uh, yeah, I mean that that is just as good of an explanation as the uh, as the idea of the breaking sort of scattering people. But I think that works for cities, not necessarily for for more rural uh, areas. More rural areas kind of tend to be a little more homogenous. Uh, but the breaking could have been sort of this forced cosmopolitanism, I guess, that uh, that helped to scatter even the rural people. So there's not as much of an insular kind of, you know, an, an insular kind of society in some of these rural societies. So yeah, I think both explanations are very plausible and, and seem to work. And I feel like uh, from our history lesson, um, when Arthur Hawkwing, the High King, kind of unified the world and sent his, you know, made his governors be from one region over another region and his troops from one region over a completely different region and spread his people all over the place like that, you know, it's, they didn't all go home when the war started. Some of them were stuck where they were. And, and I feel like that was another way to, you know, keep the mix going as it were. And exactly. You, you've yeah. got, you've, you've got sort of these external, uh, impetuses for, for this, uh, you know, for, for just spreading people out all over the place, uh, as well as, you know, just the general organic things. Yeah. That sounds very Enjoy. Roman Empire to me. <laughs> yeah, very much so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much. But then again, you've also got things like you look at uh, Amer the American South, uh, a lot of migration of African-Americans from, from the South to the industrial Midwest when, you know, when the auto industry picked up, for example. So that sort of cosmopolitan uh, migration was just sort of a natural, uh, you know, uh, economic uh, sort of impetus, I guess. There's, I don't know of another way to put it, but it's like, that's where the jobs were. That's where there was more opportunity. So I guess that's, you've touched upon, I think, something that I feel like I never, never really sat right with me, that oh, we have this in-world reason right? Yeah. The breaking. Because like you've just said, that was such a long time ago and so much happened since then. Like There were so many wars that happened. You know? mm -hmm. And so, and, and again, it's this assumption, which you've touched upon in history as well, is that this isn't our world. 
this wasn't a collection of medieval people were really insular and that was it. They stuck with each other. They married each other. We, even with the two rivers, Tam went out into the world when, like it wasn't, nobody said, oh my goodness, Tam was this you know, weirdo that went off into the world and joined a different country's army and then came back with a foreign wife. It happened. It wasn't a shocking thing. It's just part of, this is a person that went out and came back. Yeah. It was normal. And the other thing that this always makes me, these conversations always make me think about is people always say, oh, no, there couldn't have been people of color here because um, the majority was white and they would have continued to marry. And actually, after however many decades, everybody would still be white. Why is the assumption always that whichever culture that they're referring to was white? What if they were actually black? What if they were brown? Well, and I, it was the white people that were just popping in every so often and didn't stay. Like that's also yeah. something I feel like I always wonder why why does never nobody ever think about it that way? What if it was Africa? What if that's right. what all these lands were like? Yeah, good thoughts. Right. Uh, Axel, you have a follow-up. Yeah, so medieval Europe wasn't as insular or as white as popular understanding is which is pretty typical for nothing everything was more complicated people have always traveled on the one hand yeah you'll have a lot of villages where nobody went anywhere ever but people come through them like people there are always some people that go places that there is evidence of people of color everywhere all the time you know and similarly there are white people going everywhere all the time like the whole idea of an of an ethnic there was never an ethnic monoculture ever anywhere ever um but it, it, it was kind of invented by the victorians like a lot of other common historical misconceptions i would say yeah. kind of a, yeah yeah victorians the enlightenment um yeah. the enlightenment is probably the more accurate time point because that was when you had a bunch of people that were trying to create a myth of continuous social progress. The idea that everything is always getting better. And so for things to be always getting better, it means that as you go further back in time, things have, must have been worse on every para on every paradigm and every line. Right? Yeah. So in and I can go on about that in a, long, a lot of ways that I'm not going to. But yeah, just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, 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 we, if we want to mark the point to point out the bad guys, it's also when science was invented and lots of good things happened. Oh, so it makes yeah. that bit much more complicated. And especially for Americans, come to think of it, because that was right around when your country was being invented. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so, Saima, I wanted to throw back to you because uh, you brought up a discussion um, um, about uh, colorism and how, how colorism might affect um, the, the show and, and how the show is perceived. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so this is, seems to be a live conversation in the fandom. Um, with um, some people feeling that the uh, darker-skinned characters so far are mostly cast as baddies. Um, and Samaria touched upon this as well. We we have Loyal, but he is um, fulfilling the trope of the fantasy uh, character, creature. Um, 
but even with Loyal, I, I, I'm. It'll be interesting to see if all Ogier share the same coloring as Loyal, or are they going to be different? I, yeah. That was just something that occurred to me today. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the the colorism, so we have. I just want to start off by saying, the cast is amazing. The diversity, um, the range of um, people of different ethnicities is just fantastic. And this is something that's come up, and I'm, and I'm going to reference um, a couple of Twitter handles. Um, Lord Mark Cawthon said on Twitter that, and I agree, that you know personally we don't think for a second that the presence of colorism is intentional by the primary runners of this production. But bias is bias, intentional or not, right? And so by having these conversations, and we know that the crew and the cast are really uh, involved in the fandom, it's just giving a different perspective. And in terms of the main cast, so we've you know, got Nynaeve, Perrin, um, Swan, and then we have Aram and Dana. And then in terms of, you know, darker skinned characters, Luce Theron, da- Dania, who's just in the first car- in the first episode, she has like one line, mm-hmm. um, the, the woman that gets stolen, the bracelet gets stolen by, by Matt. Then we've got the warder, Yvonne, Karene, who's in one episode and dies. And then the big bads, Pad and Fane and Valda the Vicious. So it was particularly... Fane and Valda that people were speaking or referring to in these conversations about colorism. And there are, of course, lots more characters to come, but I think it is a really important conversation to have because these are the perspectives that perhaps even when folks in the shows um, are really well-meaning and they're, they're, they're trying to be as diverse as possible, this unintentional bias that Lord McCarthan talked about on Twitter is something that you know so many of us cannot just, cannot will not be aware of, and it's also in uh, South Asian culture as well. So uh, Priyanka Bose, who plays Alana, she's an outspoken critic of colorism in South Asian media, and she suffered from it herself as well. And this is a, it's a huge thing in South Asia, um, and I wanted to read a a thread on twitter which i thought was a really good way of trying to get into the shoes seeing it from that perspective so this was somebody um this is at oh god it's s and this was a conversation that happened um, at the end of november and uh, they said if my dad watches wheel of time as a white person he can see himself in a loving father a morally gray white cloak a gambler trying to provide for his sisters, a gleeman singing in a tavern. That's just some examples. When I watch Wheel of Time as it is, as a mixed pers- mixed race person, I can see myself in Egwene, Nynaeve, Dana, hell, three quarters of the people we see in Emmons Field. If my mom watched Wheel of Time as a dark-skinned black woman, she sees herself in a black woman who exists to be stolen from, a peddler who whistles and smiles while Trollocs kill villagers, and a white cloak that burns women alive. It's early to see if this is truly a trend rather than just happenstance. Only time will tell as additional characters are introduced, but we can and will point this shit out in media, no matter if it's beloved or not. 
and that's putting yourself in the shoes of you know everyone yeah. that can see themselves and i just thought that was a really great way to because a lot of people don't understand colorism yeah and this thread actually <laughs> a lot of the responses in this thread showed that but it is about getting a different perspective and again we're not saying that it's intentional that they are already giving us so much but that doesn't mean that we can't say could we have a look at it from this perspective as well yeah good thoughts uh greg has something to say to that yeah that that was something that i i had definitely noticed uh hadn't really brought it up but you know just because that's kind of an uncomfortable conversation but that's what we're here for right now that yeah the the darker skinned people in the in the show are the big bats you know it's uh it it it's something that is definitely noticeable uh i noticed it um i didn't really you know have a way to put it into words but it, it's something that it just feels a little a little uncomfortable to me um that that's where they're going with it because there is so much great representation everywhere else. You know, um, yeah. it, it, it makes me wonder, you know, were these a, a, a production decision, you know, um, I, for... I'm, I'm going to jump in on you right there. I don't think it was a conscious production decision on any level. I think, I think it's just a blindness to an issue that doesn't affect some people so they can't see the issue which is you know what privilege is right um, i would like, so, I, so I, I'm, I'm not going to say that it was anything on on you know they were saying oh we're only going to cast dark people for the bad guys that i do not right. think that on any level right 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 but uh just as a an unconscious thing you know yeah yeah, un unconscious bias, I don't think we realize how pervasive and how powerful it is. Mm -hmm. It is unconscious, but it's because we're so used to seeing certain people in certain roles that when we think about, oh, who would fill this, you immediately think of the same group of people. Having said that, the casting agency for Wheel of Time is absolutely fantastic. They've right. done such a great job, and I have no doubt that they're going to continue to do a great job. But it is by pointing out these things and I, I just want to share one of the perspective on this which i hadn't thought about and this was um J uh, jason natale on twitter karenna's death was upsetting we get one prominent dark-skinned aes Sedai who dies for two white aes Sedai and only features in one episode while her warder white features heavily in two episodes again not intentional and yet the unconscious bias in that is really important to witness. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Samaria, you have something to say. Yeah. Um, I'm actually glad you brought up Karene. Um, though maybe I can save that discussion for later since it's not, it's about um, gender politics and dynamics. But um, when it comes to Valda and Patton fame, what really sticks out to me and, oh, I should throw in a disclaimer. I am light-skinned for all our listeners out there. Um, in certain contexts, I actually get mistaken for biracial. I'm not. Both my parents are Black. But um, that is something that I feel like I should throw out there. Like, if you meet me, you cannot mistake me for anything but Black. But I am light-skinned, and that does matter a lot, um, both in my lived experiences and in this conversation. 
um, there's a thing in both media and just how we operate as, you know, a society in seeing dark skinned black men as, you know, being dangerous and just being, you know, harmful, you know, um, and this, you know, this goes back centuries where, you know, black people and especially black men, you know, are, you know, seen as basically little better than animals and how that's carried out over centuries and decades um, when it comes to, oh gosh, pretty much everything that has to do with being alive. And, you know, the scene, well, pretty much any scene with Valda, you know, but especially the scene with um, Perrin and Egwene being captured and Egwene being forcibly cleaned and thrown into um, that shift and how Valda speaks to her and tortures Perrin, which is very triggering. Um, and I wouldn't say it was triggering, because, you know, in the sense where, oh, I can't watch this at all, but it was very triggering where I had to, you know, actively ground myself um, on my couch because, you know, that brought up, you know, some religious trauma being, you know, black and female growing up in, um, not necessarily the church, but also the church. There's a lot of trauma about being black and female in the black church, but also going to fundamentalist Christian elementary schools run by white people who do despise strong-willed black girls. Um, and but also seeing how that same extent, how they treated my dark-skinned black male classmates. Um, and so, you know, that very quiet violence, you know, people are stricter on little dark-skinned black boys. You know, they punish them harsher. Um, they assume they're not as smart as pretty much any other of their peers. Um, they grade them more harshly, um, speak to them more harshly, and how that follows you know, seeing this as, you know, a black girl growing up and seeing how this manifests at every level in different contexts. And so, you know, you go in college, it was a big thing. Like every, like every year, you know, something pops off, you know, racist incidents at the University of Alabama. And it was always really jarring, you know, Saturdays, you know, there's an entire field of young, dark-skinned Black men who are winning these games and being cheered on and being celebrated, um, you know, just being lauded as the second coming. And then the next six days, you know, they're being targeted. You're getting beer bottles thrown at them. They're being called the N-word. You know, they're just being abused and very various different ways, both big and small. And if they're not immediately recognizable as an athlete, then, you know, their treatment completely switches. And I do think, you know, those kind of attitudes do play a part in, you know, how we cast. Um, you know, Valda um, gets that, yes, this is a dark-skinned Black man. And of course, he'll abuse these, you know, poor, you know, beautiful, delicate, women who, you know, are not mostly white to their, you know, to the casting's credit. Um, but it still matters because, you know, who do, you know, who do we, the collective we think is going to be the most dangerous to women in general, dark skinned black men. Um, 
And, you know, oh, if you give a dark skinned black man power, he's allowed to have power. What how's he's what's he's going to do with it? Um, and Pat and Fane, you get, you know, in the flip of that where you get this really chaotic, sneaky, conniving element where it's like, oh, you know, dark skinned black men can't be trusted. Yes. You know, they're really smart, but you know what they'll do with that intelligence. They're going, you know, to trick you. They're going to hurt you. Um, they're going to manipulate you. They're going to bring you literally to the dark side, which I mean, that might be, that might be reaching, that might be too on the nose, but I do think it should be said. David, you had something to say. Yeah. I was just, as we're talking about this, cause it's not something that I normally think about, obviously. Um, it occurred to me that I wonder if this is a kind of self-perpetuating issue in that actors who have that dark of a skin in order to get roles in the work that they're doing have to get better at those villain roles because that's the historical of what's been cast in and i don't know if that's the case or not but and i almost wish dw was here to comment on that but i wonder if we're in this situation because the casting is so good in this show like they've found these actors that really know how to portray those parts and by no fault of their own have had to work at that because those are the parts that are given to them by the industry. That's like the that, Asian martial a, artist problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a great Actually, choice. The, the typecasting becomes the casting. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah, that fits in. Um, I was listening to a discussion uh, by, with Scroobius Pip last night that was talking about how you develop your role within the acting industry. Um, and, and very much that's how things work, right? Like, because a lot of casting has to do with what is, you know, like what is an actor's kind of niche? What is, what is the thing that they are good at? What will the public associate with them as soon as they see them? So, if you're an if if you're an actor of color and you want to get cast and you want to work, you're gonna line. Yeah, it, it basically it requires rich white people to fight against it because yeah. they're the people it, that have the power. It's a feedback loop, just like all of the other issues become feedback loops yep. in that same way. Yeah. So another interesting note on race. Um... The scene between Swan, Nynaeve, Egwene, and, and Moraine in the tower, I found made for a really interesting dynamic of this powerful, experienced, older black woman who's guiding and preparing the younger, inexperienced women of colour who have the potential to be as great as, if not greater, than the Amelensee. And the white woman in the room, Moraine, is almost being like in the servant role in that scene because she doesn't speak. She's the one that opens the door and brings them in. She remains by the door. The camera pans to her for reactions when Swan's talking. But I just found that whole setup really powerful and I felt was deliberately done. And it was just the, the relationship between Swan and Nynaeve and Egwene. And then Maureen just being kind of off set. She's like at the edge of that, of that entire encounter. It was really powerful, centering women of color. And it made me quite emotional. 
And again, it's one of those things that until I saw it, it was this unconscious, why am I feeling what I'm feeling? And it's like, oh, because you don't see this. You don't see this in Hollywood. And I just wanted to just say thank you to everybody that made that scene happen because it was beautiful. And then one other thing which I kind of feel touches in this segment um, about race, although it's, it's, it's culture, it's also fashion, but hijabi representation. I don't believe I have ever seen hijabi representation in a fantasy show like this. Um, I remember when the trailer came out and my hijabi friends and uh, especially my cousin who I got into Wheel of Time after I started reading it and she's a hijabi, it was like, what the flip? Did we just see a hijabi Aes Sedai? And this has been a huge deal in this part of the world. It's amazing to think that in Wheel of Time, we have women who are covering their head and it doesn't have anything to do with any of the Abrahamic faiths. It's got to do with whatever, we don't even know which culture these Aes Sedai are from yet. You know, I, I'm, I can't wait to find out where they're from and how other people in their culture dress. But we have a blue Aes Sedai, a grey Aes Sedai, a green Aes Sedai, and the amazing red Aes Sedai, who wears this gorgeous flowing hijab, especially in the hall. There's a scene where the, the camera pans up uh, as the red sisters are leaving, and you see her red shawl hijab trailing behind her. It's just so gorgeous. And to basically see um, hijabi fans like squeeing over this has been so beautiful. It's just wonderful that they've done this. And what really excites me and also gets me emotional is actors who wear head coverings can apply for a role in the show and they'll get it. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that they wear a headscarf. That is not the focus of, you know, I know there was this, uh, one of the Spider-Mans, I can't keep up with them. One of the Spider-Mans had a hijabi girl in the classroom apparently and everybody was like oh wow hijabi representation this is on a different level she was cast so that she there could be a hijabi girl in the classroom whereas these women whether they wear the headscarf um you know off camera or not they've not been cast because they're representing that reason they've just been cast because they're gorgeous amazing actors and i just think it's fantastic Thank you. That's my love rant over. No, it's great to hear stories like that. Uh, that that's exactly what I was talking about when I said I wanted as many people to feel that same feeling of belonging as I did. And and yeah, love love hearing it. Um, I I want to move on and and talk about uh, uh, gender uh, as it relates to the books. Um, and in the books and in the show so far, there's there's a very essentialist view of gender because we have, you know, the male half of the power and the female half of the power and the never the two shall meet. And, and you know, this, this 
goes against uh, a, a lot of our current ideas around gender, and and I'm wondering how they might, you know, get some of those ideas of gender into the show. But uh, you know, we'll we'll see what they do, how they do it. Um, I have some ideas. I'll bring those up a little bit later. Um, but for now, um, as as far as uh, uh, just the broader gender and sexuality, uh, Samaria, you had something you wanted to to discuss from earlier. I did. And I didn't know whether this was more like race or gender, but you know what? When it comes to Black women, it's always both. Um, what I really loved about Karine and wish that we got to have more than one episode of was how much she's being taken care of. And so obviously, you know, she has a warder and she's an Aes Sedai and warders are supposed to look after their Aes Sedai. That, that's what they do. Um, and, you know, we see all kinds of different relationships between Aes Sedai and warders. They're very platonic. Sometimes they're romantic. Sometimes they're sexual. And, you know, personally, I got a very like, oh, like kind of brother, sister, best friends for life vibe between Corinne and her man. And, but what I just, just brought me so much joy was 45, 50 minutes of a black woman being taken care of. You know, he respects her. He looks up to her. He positively adores her. And it, like you, what, so growing, like growing up a black girl, being a black woman, there's always so much conversation every single day at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, on social media, um, on the bus, like in the group chats. Oh, you know, about how black women are difficult or, you know, you know, people see black women as difficult. Oh, this is why you guys are baby mamas. This is why, you know, you guys are the least married, da, 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 da. And yes, I mean, there's probably a conversation to be said about Karene having a white warder and, you know, what that means um, with race and gender. But for me, I just love the unabashed, unadulterated adoration of, you know, a black woman being in this position of power, but she's also allowed to be soft. She's allowed to, you know, laugh with her, you know, her best friend, she's allowed to just be, and, she, you know, at least between them, there are no real expectations about who he, who she has to be, how she has to behave. You know, she's allowed to put her feet up he tells her to relax and put her feet up. And, you know, there's something in pretty much every black woman across the world who that like that craves that. And it doesn't have to be from a man, but it does even I, I mean, in my in my experience, even as a queer woman who's pretty much uninterested in ever dating a man again, you know, that wants that affection from a man just because you know from the time we're born like we're basically told that either we're not allowed to have that or you know we don't deserve that or we have to jump through so many different hoops to have that and Karina just gets it you know like and what more than she gets it she's with a man who worked for her so, you know, he was the one who had to essentially level up to be on her level. And he does it willingly and he does it happily and he does it joyfully. And 
like being able to see that even if it was just for one episode and then seeing the next episode where he's like I'm nothing without her and okay that that may or may not be the healthiest but you know like seeing (laughs) seeing how like he's just (laughs) devastated because he no longer has Karene in his life you know this black woman in his life it's like yes there is something in me that is just so soothed and you know healed from from having that even for a little bit great great thoughts all around uh greg you have something to say yeah the, the one thing about you know talking about the depiction of black women one of the other things that's usually in there is the caretaker you know that that's that's kind of a that 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 that's kind of a stereotypical trope you know an archetype uh that's been foisted upon uh, black women over the years. And, uh, you know, she's supposed to be the caretaker, but she's the one that's getting taken care of. I can see how that would be very, you know, very satis- satisfying to see. Yeah, I love that point you just made because Nynaeve is a black woman who is a caretaker. Mm-hmm. And boy, is she allowed to be angry. Yes. Right? And they listen to her. So, yes. They Absolutely. listen to her anger and justify it. And I like that too. Yeah. And again, yeah. it's, it's, that's where you can say if it was just one, then it's that trope, but it's actually flipping the other trope on its head. That you're not allowed right. to be in combining it in a really powerful, beautiful expression. Right. To be a caretaker and be quote unquote bossy without being, you know, put down for it or having to pay a price for it. Siobhan, earlier I know you said you had some thoughts uh, when we got to the gender section, uh, gender and sexuality. Uh, Did you want to address any of those? Yeah, so I guess, um, I mean, we've had this discussion about how um, that the gender essentialism is very much how uh, it's it's integral to the source material. Um, You know, the idea of uh, the men and the women channeled the different kinds of the one power, the two different streams. Like there's so much uh, imagery that's used in the show, like, you know, the, the two rivers, the bridge that has, you know, the two arches, everything's split down the center. So I guess, I guess my, um, my take on this is that the people who are producing the show obviously are willing to take the source material and do new and interesting things with it. I mean, we already saw, for example, that they were willing to age up the main characters in order to avoid some of the, you know, more, more, more troubling aspects of having children running out on, on world changing quests, things like that. So they're willing to take some liberties with the background material. And I really would like to see them do something to address the basic gender essentialism of the original story. I mean, it is made very clear that women channel Sadar, but there is no definition in the text necessarily of what constitutes a woman. And yeah. we have we have made jokes on this show before about how, you know, we say we want things and then they happen. So if anybody's listening, what I want to happen is to have an out trans actress playing an Aes Sedai in the tower and channeling Sadar, and it be to absolutely go uncommented. There's no big story about why she's there. She's there because she belongs there. 
I will tell you, I have that same desire. Um, similar, not not ver- not the specifics. But I have that same desire to see some kind of transgender representation um, within um, the world and within the 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 magic uni- using community within that world. I personally have another culture in in the world that I have picked out that I think due to cultural back the the due to reasons of of the cultures that it is based on I believe that they would be um the ones who would be more aware of of uh beyond the gender binary and um you know separating gender from from physiology and you know things to that nature and i think that that is that would be the good place to introduce that in the story especially in a way that that you know is is just it's there it's not commented on it's just part of our society um i'm not going to say any more than that because i would get into to heavy spoiler territory for for a culture that you get you have not not really met yet um can't wait. But yeah, I, I I echo your thoughts on that. Um, yeah, uh, David, you have a thought. Yeah, so to uh, kind of move on and follow uh, what you guys have already said about gender roles in the show, I wanted to uh, bring up the matter of toxic masculinity since that's a a huge thing from my past and has informed my life. Um, and I think the show has done it really, really well. Uh, our main masculine character, uh, at least the one that I relate to, would be Lan. And we've already seen Lan be a calm person, be able to cry and show emotion. Um, yeah. And these are things that just wouldn't be done in a, a tos- toxic masculine world. And the other thing that I've noticed that they did really well is when they did show toxic masculinity uh at least from my opinion would be when they uh visited uh with Agomar and showed yeah. Agomar mm-hmm. and what they did is they made it larger than life they made it almost comical on a yeah. level and showed it as something that is not really realistic and that just was great to see for me and and you actually touched on something there, Saima. I think you can back me up on this one. Um, Lan being able to have emotions in the show has been kind of a controversial issue within the the fan community because, um, as as you were saying, he's he is kind of the the very masculine character for a lot of people to to latch onto. And in the books, he is a lot more traditionally masculine and in many ways toxically masculine and he doesn't really show his emotions that much and and he really doesn't show his emotions greatly in the show either other than the funeral scene but he does show a little emotion otherwise and he he did not shy away from from his duty of showing that emotion in that scene which like I was saying, caused a little consternation within the fan community, but several of, of us also looked at that and said, no, that's awesome. That That's that's what we need to see. Uh, Saima, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, um, so I, I love the way that David's framed this and because it totally touches upon this, this complaint of emasculation that we discussed. Um, I'm going to have to be really careful so the spoilers don't fall out. I think book one is okay, is it? 
anything that we've seen from book one in the show is okay. Okay, so I will be talking very slowly. Petrified okay. um, <laughs> 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 of spoilers falling out of my gob. Um, so I find it... Re- so I think Lan in the books is such a drama queen. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't understand what what people like Lan is awesome. Um, except when it comes to Nynaeve, he is such a drama queen. Um <laughs> and I also so I didn't understand how book readers missed the caring role of warders in the books. But then I realized it's that thing again, right? When you read something, yeah. you see you read and imagine what you want to see. Seeing the warders being warders, they are incredibly caring, nurturing, attuned yeah. to every need of their Aes Sedai. Right? And Lan, from the very first moment he comes on screen, he is doing that for Maureen. And I just think that we just need to step back and realize that's always happening in the books. And yeah. Jordan is so skillful that he kind of, he may write the outcome of something that's happened. But if you were in that room seeing it happen, Lan was doing those caring, nurturing things, but you, Jordan may only have written the outcome. It's like there's so much going on in between the lines even. And I think a lot of people see Lan as just this girl, man, strong, sword, stoic, quiet, girl. Which he is. <laughs> except when he's talking to Nynaeve and he's a total drama queen, booby, yeah. as I like to see him. As and so that so I think there is this everything is already there in the source material. Right? Jordan was flipping the toxic masculinity on its head and and yet it still comes through because he was a man of his time too and yet he did such an amazing job for being a man of his time and the show doesn't have to go too far to pull that and i think that while i do think there are some aspects that the show have drastically improved upon i would say toxic femininity <laughs> the show has done an amazing job at getting rid of some of the the things in the books that i wasn't so keen on again speak slowly don't say anything too much um but in terms of the warders it was there but we're just seeing it represented in the show and i think that because a lot of people want to see themselves as the warders the warders are not corn in the barbarian right Waters are Lan and Stepin and Maxim and Yvonne. Like that's that's being a warder, yeah. how they are presented, and I just think it's it's beautifully done. And it's it's not just showing emotion too. It's being able to be tender and open and not so guarded, which that comes out in the scenes with. Nynaeve a lot comes out in the scenes when he's with his Malkir family and it's a beautiful thing to see yeah and then my favorite scene the scene with no dialogue when he goes to Moraine's room in the tower and just kneels like so much is said in that scene it's just oh yeah really powerful stuff Uh, actually you you had something to add 
it's one of the weird things about our culture is the um men as stoic non-emotional is very much a roman thing right it, it's very explicitly roman culture um if you look at lots of other cultures and um like uh norse and germanic to go just to stay within white people men were the emotional ones women were the ones who were logical and controlled and had everything so we've really like our view of our view of like our view of what it means to be a toxic man is really limited to this particular place then like it doesn't even extend to fucking Greece or Rome or oh, sorry sorry to to Greece or Egypt um or Persia like it's Rome interesting yeah in south asian culture in middle eastern culture um you know the relationships that men have between each other they they yeah. are very very different yeah to yeah. yeah the west it, it, yeah, and, and and yeah, I don't want to say like I think West is a really bad term because if you it it's in like it's places it it's it hits England like English speaking a lot because again the Enlightenment was very much we go back to Rome and then we go back to Greece, right? And there is very much an attempt to tie everything into that lineage, even if you step outside of English speaking western countries it doesn't that 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 isn't it's it's different because as i said like you can look at germanic and and norse cultures that were around really more recently than rome um and there as i said like women were the ones who were emotionless and logical and took care of business and men were the ones who were the emotional and just did shit because it seemed like a good idea at the time like it's hmm. but that is just lost from our cultural narrative hmm. interesting yeah it's sort of the exact opposite here in america at least uh i mean looking at any time you've got you know women running for higher office uh you know that the, yeah. the whole emotional trope comes up and it's like, well, maybe not necessarily. <laughs> Simon. Yes. I, I just wanted to come back to um, this idea of gender essentialism in the books and then what Siobhan oh. raised as well. So there's something that I noticed was I found it really interesting how it is very much in the books, it was, I think it was, it seemed more balanced in the books because we had Bran, who, uh, Gawain's dad, who was the mayor. And in the show, he's presented more in the nurturing, fretful parent mode. Like, you know, when Gawain comes, comes into the, to the inn and he's like, oh, you know, my daughter, you know, it's like, oh, my daughter, you're safe. Everything's fine. I was so worried about you. And, and it seems that, Marin, his wife, she seems to have more of the the leader leader role alongside Nynaeve in mm. in the two rivers. And I don't know how I feel 
about like I wanted Bran. I want more of the more of the Bran, and I, I yeah. hope we will get to see more of him uh, as the show progresses. But it's also the same with Isla and and uh, Rayan. Okay, in the in the Tuatha'an. so Isla takes the lead, and the yeah. show seems to be taking this clearer focus with women in the lead in all areas, and then where men are leading they're shown with that same arrogance that Moraine mentions in her, in her episode one called open. Right. And, and that, and yeah. like David said, with, with uh, Lord Agomar. And I was talking about this with some, with some of the friends and I was saying, you know, I'm, I, I understand what they're doing, but I'm not sure how I feel about it. And, you know, one of them raised the fact that, well, this is just the season one. This is really showing the gender essentialism. Once it's, let everybody understand that this is how it works, then it can start going into more of the nuance. And I think yeah. that's where we're going to get see more of the things that Siobhan was talking about, where once it's been established in the show, then we can start seeing the gray areas, the nuance, and we'll, I absolutely believe we're going to see that in the sexuality as well. I, I just, I'm hundred percent. I don't yeah. know. Basing that on absolutely nothing. I just know that we're going to get that. Ray, for you listening. Okay. And I, mean, I also, just, sorry. I was going to say, just considering how much information they've had to give us this season. And it, it, it feels like, you know, a, a flood of information and they've barely scratched the surface of in, of, in eight episodes, no less yeah, so. of yeah. everything. So I can see why they might lean more into that that gender essentialism and, and putting more women in charge, even though they weren't necessarily in charge in the books, just to like put that in perspective in the show with the limited time that they have. So. Yeah. And also a really important thing that Moraine herself says, right. So, so the, th the thing that I was immediately kind of like, like I didn't like in the cold open is where she said, you know, and men tried to, to bind the dark one, the arrogance, right. Yeah. The disdain in her voice, the arrogance. And I was like, well, no, hang on. Everyone was, well, again, speak slowly. <laughs> <laughs> the struggle oh, is real. <laughs> wow. I'm so proud of myself that I caught myself. <laughs> okay. Um, so apparently that is what happened. But as Maureen later says herself, we don't know. The prophecies have been may have been rewritten so many times. The history's been rewritten so many times. So I really liked this connection that actually she's assuming this is what happened, but is that what actually happened? And we do see Luz Theron and Latra Pose having that conversation, but that was a really short conversation in, in a much wider. Yeah. There was a lot of other things yeah. happening that you will we, find we out heard soon. you you and I heard a whole lot of things in that conversation. Yeah. Um, a lot more than everybody else heard, but none of that is anything that we're gonna get into at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. so swiftly moving on, I just want to say <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just uh, wanna actually touch on one of the things that I liked within the first season in the general is that like Leandrin is kind of like our center of toxic femininity in this yeah. world. You know, yeah, like, that 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 that's a good good observation. Uh Samari, yeah, you yeah, when we're talking about gender essentialism, what always like really sticks out to me, it's in the very beginning, and Leandrin makes a point about telling the guy they're about to gentle, you know, men touch it and make it filthy. 
And we know that's not how it happened. You know, the source is corrupted and corrupts the men, but the way she stands on it and, you know, how we hear Moraine talk about it like five seconds before is that men themselves are the problem. And I like have held on to that, you know, over the past few months, because like, I really want to know, um, you know, I just want to see how it plays out, but also like, I'm fascinated about how over the history of it between, you know, the battle, the breaking through now, um, you know, how that story has been told, how it's, you know, just gone over different ways. And so, you know, like when Leandrin is saying, you know, men made it filthy, like, is that, is that blaming, you know, Luce and his army, you know, like, of course, you know, yeah, well, yeah, the dark one corrupted it, but he wouldn't have corrupted it if, you know, you hadn't gone after him. So it's your fault, you know, it's circular logic, perhaps, but, you know, and, you know, how that plays out. So, you know, in the show, we have, you know, women in, you know, these positions of power where it's just, oh, so gently shifted over to women from men. And one, actually, I didn't notice that until Simon said something, because that's pretty much how I grew up, where, and I think a lot of, you know, um, Black folks in the U.S. especially can testify to this, where you grow up in families full of women. And it's not that, you know, it's a matriarchal structure. It's just more of an absence of men. So you fill in the vacuum. Um, But, you know, there's this just weird nuance where, like, if there's a man around, like, then, you know, that he becomes, you know, the man of the house, you know, the head of the family, you know, the patriarchy, the patriarchal structure is absolutely in place, you know, girls are, you know, absolutely encouraged. You need a man, you know, that's the way life should be. You need a man to provide for you, protect you, da, 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 da. But also you're very independent and you're self-sufficient and you can take care of yourself. And, but also you should, you know, you should definitely have a, you know, a man in your life, you know, first your father, then your husband, da, 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 da. It's a whole thing. But, um, that's kind of the energy I, like, I get in this situation where it's, like it, like having women in charge, women running the place is, you know, very natural, very familiar, but it's more born out of necessity rather than that's how maybe this, you know, these societies want to be set up or would have been set up if not for the breaking. Interesting thoughts. Uh, David, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, now I really want to see Leandrin's man that he that she visits on the East Dock and what gender roles that person plays in their relationship. Well, I really want to see her meet somebody on the East Dock, considering there is no East Dock in Tarvalon. <laughs> the docks are on the north and south. Oh, north, sorry. So that would be really interesting. <laughs> Wherever she meets her man, I want to see that relationship. Yeah. I'm, East Dock I'm, is I'm, a bar in the. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I too am very interested to to learn more about uh, the man that she meets in North Harbor. Um, yeah, that's it's not something from the book, so I'm I'm really latching onto that as a possible mystery um, for fun. But also, in Leandrin. Um... You know, Axel pointed out this this toxic femininity, but I'm also really interested in apparently 
we, we are going to find out more about this, what she says to Nynaeve about women may have power, but men still control much in the world, something to that effect. That got an amen and, I, and again, I think that to me, that's another sign of, okay, the show set up these gender, you know, the gender essentialism, but we're heading towards more of this nuance, this gray, you know, where areas where it's not how it seems to be, especially when you're in the tower and you're traveling with Aes Sedai. That's yeah. not how it is everywhere. That's just where the power is held in a moment. But as we know, a lone Aes Sedai can go missing. This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and, of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. Hi, I'm Dr. Pengalod. What seems to be ailing you today? Doc, it's the strangest thing. Every night after I've gone to bed, just as I start to drift off, I start yelling out strange words like Shire, Frodo, and Gollum. Last night I even yelled Mordor. I really don't know what to do. Ah, yes. I've been seeing this a lot lately. What you're experiencing is called Tolkien in your sleep. It's caused by an acute Lord of the Rings deficiency. Tolkien in my sleep? Oh no, that sounds serious. Don't worry, don't worry. It's really common right now. It can be treated with a very simple prescription. Here, take this. It's called Watch Party, Lord of the Rings. Watch Party, Lord of the Rings? It's a great podcast where they talk about everything related to Lord of the Rings. They go deep into the lore, talk about the film trilogy, old cartoon adaptations, and Amazon's Lord of the Rings series. Listen to it once a week, and you'll stop Tolkien in your sleep in no time. Side effects of Watch Party, Lord of the Rings may include happiness, giggling, merrymaking, jollification, witty banter, inner peace, enlightenment, and excessive Tolkien while awake. Caution, Watch Party, Lord of the Rings may be addictive. Axel uh, got wound up and, and wandered off into the corner for a while, and uh, the rest of us uh, the rest of us realized that we are three topics into this discussion, and we have uh, at least six or eight more topics to go. So at that, uh, I think we're going to say that we're going to break this up into uh, multiple episodes because uh, we've apparently got a lot to say. So, uh, with that being said, uh, do we have any more, any more discussion, just loose change related to what we've talked about so far today? Uh, Siobhan, what do you got? So, uh, before we get into talking about race and culture, I very much wanted to give a shout out to the way the Tuatha On were portrayed. Um, I think, uh, when that episode aired, when they first appeared, you said they were a combination of the um, travelers in Ireland and Scotland and with some influence from Roma and uh, a costume designer mentioned um, a, a, a nomadic tribe in, in Peru, yeah. I think. Yeah. Depictions of nomadic people are very rarely that positive and well-rounded. They are usually either treated as the, you know, magical, mysterious fortune teller or they are treated, um, you know, as criminals, or you know, their comic relief, or you know, the tragedy of of you know the the, the traveler people when dealing with 
with settled cultures. And I thought that the way that they were portrayed and the way they actually came right out and talked about how other people see them, I thought was incredibly well done. And I really just wanted to give the show um, all the kudos in the world for handling that so well. Agreed. Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that 100%. They, um, yeah, they, they even treated um, that word tinker as a slur in universe, which not a whole lot of people are even aware that that is a slur for them. So the fact that they went that far with it is, is, is pretty awesome. I'm still hoping that uh, Amazon marketing will rectify that. Yeah, they're, they they still use that that term in some of the X-ray features, and I think that was probably just an oversight by by somewhere some somebody somewhere along the line. Um, let let's use our our powers of of Amazon's listening to see if maybe we can get that rectified. Uh, you know, change change all reference to uh, to Othwan. And if, and if they do change it, it's totally because of this podcast, right? Obviously, obviously, yeah, most definitely. We manifest it; it happens. Yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, with that, we'll wrap this one up. We're going to start up uh, the next in this series, uh, talking about uh, sexuality and the male gaze. So uh, we'll see uh, how much further we get into our topic next episode. Uh, But for now, we're going to wrap this one up and move on to mailbag. Um, We've got mailbag. mailbag. We've got three letters this week. So let's get right into it. Uh, The first from Jill. Uh, Jill says, Ruark and crew, thank you so much for your podcast. As a longtime reader, I love hearing the story through new eyes and ears. Y'all are hilarious and entertaining and very relatable, and listening to your discussions is like hanging out with friends. I especially enjoyed the history of the Westlands. I've read the novels multiple times, but I've never really delved into the companion books and online wikis. Hearing the timeline helps me put it in perspective and gives me great background for the show. Um, and yeah, that's something I didn't really explain when we went into that episode. Um, a lot of this in the books, you have to try to piece it together in your head and you don't necessarily get the whole story. The only way to get that whole timeline stretched out is with the, uh, the companion material. So yeah, you guys got a little bit of uh, deep knowledge that some of the book readers might not even have at this point. So we're doing this right. Um, so, and, uh, Jill goes on to say, in addition to being a book reader, I also used to play the wheel of time tabletop RPG. I was a brown Aes Sedai and the man who played my warder is now my husband. Aww. Yeah. I think we need a round of awes for that one. (laughs) No, that is sweet. Love and Uh, gaming. It works. My question for you is based on what you know so far, what kind of character would you like to play in the wheel of time? Um, and I think we, we, we answered what specific character we would want to play last time, but uh, I think she just says what kind of character, what, what, what society would you want to be in? What, 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 what profession would you want? What, what, give, give me something a little more vague. Where would you want to be? What would you want to be doing? Mm-hmm. I like the idea of Glee Man. And I know that's DW's answer, but uh, yeah, yeah, you, I'd you, like you, it too. You both kind of get that answer. <laughs> You've got the music. Right. David, uh, I want to be a builder. <laughs> okay. There you go, Axel. I would want to be um, Isodai from the uh, the the law from the Age of Legends faction. No, the law faction. Um, 
Oh, brown? oh, oh. Is it brown? Yeah, the brown. Yeah. yeah. There you go. There. Yeah. A brown, brown is history, isn't that right? Isn't uh, history and and uh, they're kind of the librarians. They they keep yeah. track of everything. Yeah. No. Yeah. They're, they're, brown noise they're like that would be historian. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Saima. I want to be an independent woman who goes to the tower, takes everything she needs, and then goes off and saves the world. I'm not okay. saying that's naive, but it's naive. <laughs> <laughs> Do we need the spoiler buzzer for that? Damn it. No, no that's me. <laughs> I would want to be a teacher. Which surprisingly, I don't think we've seen yet. Like we've seen shopkeepers and book, you know, bookkeepers and I said I have all sorts, but no teachers. I'd want to be a teacher. Hmm. There we go. Um, I think my my answer is pretty obvious. I don't really need to answer this question <laughs> anyway whatsoever. Um, Jill goes on to say, I'm looking forward to hearing more background and bonus content while we wait for season two. And we're looking forward to bringing that to you. So. Thank you so much, Jill. Jill finishes by saying, may you always find water and shade. Uh, Jill, uh, my water is yours and the shade of my septum welcomes you. Ditto. Very cool. Uh, and then moving on, we've got uh, uh, from Kristen in Portland. Um, says, uh, great podcast on the shadow. Uh, I really liked Siobhan's thoughts about channelers, perhaps unintentionally creating Mashadar. It lines up in a cool way with Machin Shin arising out of the channeling used to make the ways. Even something that starts out with good intentions can become perverted when it gets bottled up. As they say, the road to hell, good intentions, etc., etc. Kristen goes on to say, I always assumed Machin Shin arose from the taint on Sidene. Could that be a male channeler caused the same with Mashadar? Regardless of the fact that it's not in the books, it feels like an allegory that would fit into the Wheel of Time universe. Which makes perfect sense to me mm-hmm, um yep. yep go and then goes on to uh say uh similar to mm-hmm. our our discussion last time of of memory mnemonics to remember how to say mirror uh Kristen says uh here's a way to remember which darkness is which uh mashadar is in mashadar loga uh and machin shin is a wind <laughs> Ah, nice. Okay. okay, thank I you. That works. Yeah. So, Samaria, you can add that to your uh, teacher repertoire when you when you start teaching in this world. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, Kristen Flash says, cards. Christian says, uh, many thanks to Siobhan for the brain candy, and uh, says she hopes she's spelling your name right. And I can say that you are. It, it's a difficult name, but you nailed it. You're my favorite now. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got one more letter. This is uh, from Jafardi. Uh, Jafardi says, Ruarkin gang, I love the podcast and can't wait for more. You guys are killing it. I can't wait for revelations as to who's guessed things completely correct. And I will never tell. Um, I, I would say that I would never tell either, but of, of course I'm obviously going to tell at some point. But uh, yeah. It'll be years from now, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, when I get to my deathbed, but, but I will tell you at some point. Uh, anyway, uh, Jafardi's question, uh, when discussing Mashadar, um, in the last episode, is it possible that Lan is incorrect 
and is only giving a history of Shatter Logoth that is only just what he's been told. Is it possible that the Tower has invented and spread what he says as propaganda for some mysterious reason? Or maybe the truth is really just lost to time, because he says it doesn't make it true. It probably is for brevity's sake in the show, but it's possible he's just spouting unintentional rumor and conjecture. Uh, and Javardi is curious as to our thoughts on that. Hmm. What would be the reason behind doing something like that? What, I think I just the passage of time, like 3,000 years and the stuff that's common knowledge about things that happened 3,000 years ago here are pretty fuzzy around the edges. You're also yeah, talking about something yeah. that happened behind closed walls that there's not really anybody who knows anything about it. Yeah, there's, there's not yeah. any record. Even the people who broke through while it was happening were just guessing. Yeah. I really history like is inherently... I mean, history is written by people. People have biases. Therefore, yeah. history has biases. And it's also based on incomplete information. So, of course, it's going to be questionable at best yeah i i think uh what the entire panel is coming down on here and what i would say to anybody listening out there is yeah take everything with a grain of salt um you know a three thousand year old game of telephone is not going to give you the correct answer most of the time so and i really like the, the that his theory as well or their theory that it could be that ice died because when we see the outside of Shadow Logos and the, and the split through the wall, I, and this is based on, this is not based on book knowledge. This is just purely seeing the show. I immediately thought that the first people that came to figure, find out what had happened inside the city were Aes Sedai because they would have used the power to do that split down the yeah. wall. Mm -hmm. so it looks very artificial. In, they yeah. find out, oh my God, this has happened. Okay, how do we, I just think Aes Sedai will always spin it. Even if they don't need to spin it, they will spin it. Yeah. And of course, there are no black Aes Sedai. <laughs> no. We no. know that they, they have never been corrupted in any way, shape, or no, form. No, what is so, black Aes Sedai? So, uh, so uh, moving on, uh, just want to say uh, check us out on social media. Uh, we've got a Twitter handle out there now. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but it, I'm. I'm sending tweets twits out to the ether um, you, can, you can enjoy watching me struggle with that if you enjoy um and uh be sure to get out there leave us reviews on wherever you get your podcast from uh give us some apple reviews we just got a wonderful apple review recently um you guys should all go check that one out it was it was wonderful and they mentioned each one of you specifically so uh, yes um so yeah go out check us out uh get some social media to do the thing with the making reviews and and stuff and my brain is shutting down because this was a long hard episode <laughs> and uh so with that i want to say thank you to michael and jen out at the secret island headquarters thanks guys thank you thank michael. you uh this has been a watch party production uh come back next week to hear the rest of this discussion or maybe just part two of a multi-part discussion we will find out but for now final question i think i'm gonna just uh change the subject entirely and give us a palate cleanser and just say hey what's everybody been into lately what do you what do you listen to what do you recommend uh let's start with you greg 
Sure. Uh, the thing I've been listening to lately is uh, this great band of uh, young women from Los Angeles called the Linda Lindas, who are absolutely fantastic. They're aged, uh, I think, 11 to 17, and they just write the purest, punkest uh, things ever. They're they're just great. Their energy is infectious, and I love, love, love their songs. Uh, as far as for watching things, uh, Murderville on Netflix just dropped, and the Sharon Stone episode I cannot recommend enough. Uh, okay. She breaks the rules of improv uh, to hilarious <laughs> effect, to absolutely she, hilarious. She says effect. no quite often. I, I yeah, instead of yeah. yes and, it's no and a steely glare. <laughs> it's no beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. David, what do you got? Yeah, so uh, no surprise here. I'm working my way through the original series of Star Trek and looking forward to Paramount Plus having a new Star Trek every week until the end of the year, which is awesome. And also uh, going back to some fun British comedy and um, found a show done by Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry called A Little Bit of Fry and Lori, and it is excellent <laughs> yes, sketch great. comedy. Agreed. Great, great show. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Axel, let's hear from you. Um, so, Doom Patrol. Oh, absolutely. I, is, I'm on board with you on this one, yes. It, the like, DC TV series have so many ridiculous and awesome, hilarious goodness. Um, um, I, I would point out that that's specifically the HBO Max series and not the CW series. I see that's getting way more geeky than I can handle. Do <laughs> <laughs> um, where they can curse. Yeah, fucking great. Um, if you wanted to go back into that kind of theme of why they're great, Gotham is the best Batman esque. TV series ever made and has no Batman in it, which is possibly why I love it so much. Um, Harley Quinn <laughs> cartoon series. Yes. Right? It, it, there is a thing and it's fucking great and it is glorious and you'll want to watch it in Doom Patrol. The end. Okay. Yes. I, I, I will back you up on everything that you just said. Uh, Siobhan, what do you got? Uh, I am finishing off the last season of The Expanse. Um, my girlfriend recently, uh, retweeted an image of the actress who plays Christian Avicerala, uh, saying, you know, new series, Christian Avicerala reads the phone book while wearing fabulous outfits. And I'm like, yeah, yes. I, watch that. <laughs> I would absolutely watch that myself. I would totally watch that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing actress. Yes. Um, and that is the actress that, that is in talks to play a role in, in Wheel of Time. So. Keep your eye hope, out. Hope, hope. That would be fantastic. I mm-hmm. love that. Yeah, I've actually been watching. Uh, uh, we just started up the Expanse again. Um, we haven't seen the last two seasons, so we decided to just start over and watch all the way through now that, that it's finished. And I'd forgotten how really fantastic it was. It is so well done. I was feeling so, like so well I should done. do that at the beginning of the last season because it is such a Every episode is so densely packed and so much happens that if you yeah. take a long enough break, it really feels like you need to just start over. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Saima, what do you got? I am listening to this super awesome podcast called What Watch Party. 
<laughs> Never heard of What's that about? <laughs> Tell us more. It's also full of amazing people, and I never thought listening to non-book readers would be interesting. Oh my god, how wrong I was! Oh, thank it's been you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Thank it's you. So awesome to have joined you. I feel like the one, the lucky ticket to be here today. Thank you very much. And watching, um, I am rewatching probably for the nth time. Uh, an awesome show called Lady Parts, which has just been renewed for season two. I'm making everybody I know watch it. Now I know the panel and everyone listening. So you all have to go and watch it yes. and get some more views so that they can be uh, feeling confident about going into season two. It is a, a British comedy about an all-female Muslim uh, punk band. And it is bloody fantastic. Awesome. It, it really is brilliant, and, and Saima is not joking about getting everybody she knows to watch it, because she, <laughs> she got me to watch it uh, right after it came out, and, and I back up everything she said about it. It is bloody fantastic. I love it. Everything about it. It's, it's so worth watching. Go check it out. We that are would Lady be, Parts. We are Lady Parts, written, directed, and created by Nida Mansour, right? Thank you Correct. very much. Yes. I am going to go and check that out right away because that sounds fucking awesome. Yes. It, it is. And um, uh, I'm actually oh. going to jump back onto another thing because it's, it's old, but it's kind of gorgeous. And I don't think a lot of people have heard of it. Sci-fi TV series called Dark Matter. Hmm. Has anybody <laughs> on this group heard about it? No. I, I know I've heard of it, but I have not seen it. Okay. Myself. So it's a... It starts off feeling like a kind of um, dollar store serenity, but then it jump. Then, as it finds its feet and develops its character, it goes into some really cool shit. And it's largely about um, how what we me- what we know about ourselves defines who we are. And it's just really fucking cool. And it's also Canadian and kind of as a result, I feel a little bit, you know, dark matter. It's really good. You probably haven't seen it because it didn't get a lot, but it's really good. No. Good to hear. Uh, And Samaria, take us home. Yes. So I have been on an electro pop kick. So I've been listening pretty much nonstop to the latest years and years album. They are a band based in London, and I've been listening to Allie X. Which London? Oh, London, <laughs> England. Ontario, England? No. Yeah, only, <laughs> only thing London, Ontario is no, really known for is hockey. But, um, which. <laughs> and Allie X and Allegedly. Charlie XCX and Griff and Sigridge. I just, I really love electronic pop uh, the last two weeks. So it's been just on a constant loop as I do everything. Um, I've been reading a couple of books. One I just started today. It's horror. Um, It's called, what is it called? The Only Good Indians. I did not want to get the title uh, wrong. The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. And the blurb says it's about these four Native American kids who had an accident. Now they're adults and they're being stalked by something. 
And I am really excited about this because it's been on hold and pending for like a year. So I'm going to read this. Um, And I've been alternating that with The Lost Apothecary, which I got through my Book of the Month subscription. And it's about uh, this apothecary who used to poison men in the 1700s and a woman who finds her shop in present day. So about to finish that up. Oh. Mm-hmm. Hijinks and Sue. Yes. Sounds great. Um, and uh, the only things that I've been consuming lately are more Wheel of Time um, through every podcast and, and online knowledge source I can find in order to stay up to date with what I need on this show. Um, and then uh, the only other thing I've really been watching, as I said, The Expanse and... Uh, um, the 10 seconds of Cad Bane showing up on the book of Boba Fett. Oh, yes. repeat over oh we need to talk about that. <laughs> we need yeah. to talk about Cad Bane. Uh, I, I think well, we've got an hour's worth of discussion off air that we can do with that. <laughs> for now, thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next week. See ya. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.